Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. The text is printed in the bulletin for you. There are a lot of miracles recorded in the Bible, um, but only a few of them are instances where someone is actually raised from the dead. Uh, that's such a remarkable miracle that there are any of them is uh, worth noting. But, um, but miracles in general are when God, uh, in his great power, reveals himself. Right? He's revealing himself. He's interrupting the normal course of events in the world in order to fix things, in order to bring about his salvation, in order to demonstrate his glorious love, his righteous love. That's what a miracle is, when God interrupts to reveal himself uh, and to fix things. The greatest problem in the world, uh, the greatest thing in need of fixing is death. It's death. Uh, Being cut off out of the land of the living, which ultimately means our separation from the one true living God, the God of eternal life. That's what death is. And death entered the world through sin, through our rebellion, through our actually choosing to have nothing to do with this God of life. Um, And if God, in his glorious love, is going to do anything to fix that problem, which is the biggest problem, if he's going to fix the problem of death, then he's going to have to conquer death itself. And he shows us that he loves us And that he actually does, in fact, have power over life and death when he works through his prophets Elijah and Elisha to raise a couple of people from the dead. Some pretty uh, remarkable stories there in 1st and 2nd Kings. Um, Jesus raised a few people from the dead, and the apostles Peter and Paul are recorded as having each raised somebody from the dead. And these are true miracles, and they're powerful demonstrations of God's love, but they're just shadows. They're just foretastes of the real ultimate thing because each of these people who were raised from the dead, and I think there's like 10 of them uh, recorded in the scriptures, um, each of them who were raised from the dead went on in their lives until they died again, just like everybody else. That's the end of all of our lives is death. These miracles were not the permanent fix for the problem of death that we need. They were not the permanent fix for the problem of death. They were, they were just really encouraging proof that God could fix the problem of death and that by his grace, he wanted to fix the problem of death. Right? Uh, God is a God who wants you to know that. He wants you to know and trust and be encouraged by his almighty love for you, the kind of love that raises people from the dead and fixes, fixes even that problem. Uh, He wants you to know that he is willing to do everything to fix your relationship with him, to fix this whole world. And it may be outside of your power to restore yourself to him. It may be outside of your power to overcome death, but it is not outside of his power. The power of his love can certainly accomplish it and it can certainly grant you eternal life. And he has done it in Jesus Christ, especially in his resurrection. God wants you to know his almighty love in Christ, to trust him, to be encouraged by this good news of Jesus' triumph over death, which is the permanent fix that we needed. So let's let's pray, and then we'll read the good news from Luke's gospel. 
Father, help us. As we consider your word, we pray that Christ would come alive among us, even in our very hearts through your spirit who's given to us. We pray that you would send your spirit to open our eyes and to unstop our ears, to make new our hearts and to renew our minds to be able to see, to, to, to see and hear and receive the best news the world has ever heard and to be changed by it. We pray that you would encourage us now in Jesus' name. Amen. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So death is a, is a huge, daunting problem for us. Maybe you don't think about it much. If you're anything like most of us, you probably don't think about it much. It's so daunting that we actually subconsciously try to deal with it by ignoring it. Uh, by burying it, by removing it from our sight, removing death and reminders of death from our daily lives. Uh, we do this as a culture, collectively, all of us. So you're not alone in that. Um, we do that collectively. It's, it's very few of us, I think, who are faced with imminent death, um, who know that they're faced with imminent death right now. It's very few of us, and, and, uh, and it's Maybe a few more of us, but uh, still few of us even who have suffered the loss of loved ones recently to death. But the contact, the contact that we do have with death is traumatic, overwhelming, confusing. It's the worst experiences of our lives. Right? The contact that we have with death is the worst thing in this world. And, and for these women, um, who Luke names Mary Magdalene, Joanna, James's mother Mary, and the, the other women who were with them, is a group of women who had been friends and followers of Jesus. And for them, what happened on Friday was the worst thing that ever happened. And really, historically and universally, it was the worst thing that ever happened, but especially for them, right? Because they were friends and followers of Jesus. And here was their Lord, he was the kindest, wisest, most righteous man ever. He was more than a man. He had the very powers of God himself over the forces of nature and the forces of darkness. He was a great teacher. He was the great teacher. He was the great prophet. 
He was the true king who could overcome anything. And expectations were high that he would fix not only Israel, but the whole world as his kingdom advanced. Expectations were very high, and that would surely mean that life would get better for these women who were here, who were his friends, who were some of his early followers. Couldn't believe that they were blessed to know him these last few years of his life on earth. And here he was, uh, cruelly betrayed by one of their friends, one of their other friends. Um, Unjustly treated by everybody with official power in the land. The religious leaders, the government leaders. He was led through humiliation and torture to a shocking and public, shameful execution. And now he was dead, and soon he'd be forgotten, like all of the dead are forgotten. All of the dead are forgotten. And that was him now. They lost their loved one. Their hopes were crushed. Life itself seemed uh, like nothing more than a cruel joke. Overwhelming. And they went at early dawn, um, probably because they were afraid to be seen as associated with Jesus by anybody who would see them in the daytime going to his tomb. And they went to go and mourn and make his body smell nice for whatever futile reason. Death at one. Death always wins in the end. Except for this time. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. So first the women were confused. Where is Jesus' body? They did not immediately come to the conclusion, well, he must be alive again, (laughs) you know. They, they were perplexed. Where is his body? Here's an interruption to what they were expecting. The normal course of their mourning the dead, the straightforward demoralizing defeat at the hands of death. There was some interruption here. And then the men appeared. And you get the sense that they appeared while they were in the tomb. They just appeared. And they're angels, as Matthew clarifies for us. And what, what always happens when angels appear in the Bible? It's fear. Right? It says they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. Uh, when angels show up, there's usually, there's just something about them. And uh, people take them very seriously, usually by passing out. Right? That's, uh, there's, there's something about them, and people take them very seriously. So don't overlook them. You should take them very seriously. And if you pay attention to anything in this passage, pay attention to what they have to say. So this story so far is actually uh, very close to a horror story. Death, suspense, darkness, the door mysteriously ripped off the hinges, startling supernatural strangers. So far, it's difficult to be encouraged until these men, until these angels open their mouths. And this is what they had to say. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. So this is the first encounter that humans ever had with the full truth of the gospel, and these women were privileged to hear it from angels themselves. The tomb was empty, and the reason why the tomb was empty was that the occupant was alive again. By itself, the empty tomb is not proof of the resurrection. It's just confusing, maybe perplexing. There's no body here. 
By itself, it's not proof of the resurrection. It's the empty tomb plus the sightings of Jesus who was raised from the dead that serve as full proof. And we'll look at some of those sightings uh, next week. Um, That's not in our passage this morning. We'll look at some of those next week, so you're supposed to come back and listen to that. But for the moment, let me assume those sightings, because they do happen just right after this passage, if you're following along in the scriptures. Let me say that Christianity began 2,000 years ago because a few people, relatively few people, believed that something happened to Jesus after he died, that death wasn't the end for him. It wasn't the last word for him. It wasn't the end of the story like it was for everybody else who died and was forgotten. It's because a very few people believed that something happened to Jesus after his death. They believed that because something happened to Jesus after he died. What caused belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People might look at Christians who believe in the Lord Jesus as risen, and they'll say that we're gullible, that we're weak-minded, that we'll just believe anything against common sense. Look here. We feel and we know the absolute despair of this broken world just as well as any rational atheist does. We feel it. We know that death wins. We know that people don't just come back from that. These women knew that as well as anyone. Their encounter is clearly recorded to show their surprise, just like anyone in their position would have been and and should be surprised. No one was ready for the resurrection. No one anticipated that. But it is reality. It is truth. It is the way things really are historically. There was an empty tomb, and people saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. People believed, and people continue to believe, that Jesus rose from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead. It may be inexplicable, but that's the simple, clear message of the angels. He's not here. He's out there. He's not dead. He's alive again from the dead. And historically speaking, there uh, simply is no credible alternative to that. Scholars and historians have provided no credible alternative to the the truth, the historical truth of the resurrection. The resurrection really happened, and again, we'll look at it more next week, but the angels continue on in verse 6 to say, Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? Right? Jesus has told his followers several times that the Scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures has said that it was necessary that he would die for the forgiveness of sins and rise again from the dead for our everlasting life with God. Jesus himself taught it several times. It's recorded several times in each of the Gospels. And he was probably referring to passages like our Old Testament reading. When Jesus taught his disciples, he probably would have mentioned Isaiah 53, which Nathaniel read, that said he, he was oppressed, afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Right? For the transgressions of God's people, he was cut off. They made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
He shall make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, after his death, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Such prophecies don't make sense unless the Messiah, the one who would bear the transgressions of his people, the one who would die for his people to save them for their, uh, from their sins and set back right everything that was broken in the world, it doesn't make sense unless he died for the forgiveness of their sins and then conquered death itself and rose from the dead to bring us eternal life. Jesus taught his disciples that repeatedly and they never believed it. It shows in each of those passages where he taught them, they did not believe what he was saying. They couldn't comprehend it. They refused to believe it. They refused to believe it for whatever reasons. They didn't believe it because they didn't want to believe it. But on seeing the empty tomb and the angels and being reminded of Jesus' own advanced interpretation of these events, it says they remembered. They remembered. And this implies that it actually started to make some sense. Right? There was some clicking, some light bulb going on. right? And maybe there was actually a glimmer of hope in all of this despair. Maybe there was. Maybe death wouldn't have the last word after all. Their slow, weak faith was starting to catch up with God's reality. Their slow, weak faith was just starting to catch up with God's reality. The good news, God's reality, was better than they could imagine. It was better than they could hope for. But their faith was starting to catch up with it. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So this little section um, is actually meant to encourage you. It's actually meant to help your slow, weak faith to start to catch up with the amazing reality of the resurrection. Because this is not the kind of thing you write down um, if you're crafting a fable. This is not what you write down if you are several decades after these events were supposed to have have happened. This is not the kind of thing you write down if you're saying, let's make up a crazy story and try to convince people that it's true to start a new movement, to start a new religion. This is absolutely not the right thing to write down if you're going to do that. This is what you write down if the events are actually true. Because it, it rings of truth, doesn't it? The, the women's names were recorded because presumably they were fairly well known among the disciples in the early church and uh, could be asked about what happened. Right? So if you're making up a story that is false, then claiming that it's based on eyewitness testimony, you don't actually name the eyewitnesses because uh, every, uh, someone might verify with them, check the facts, and discover your lie. Right? If, you're, if you're trying to make up a story that you're trying to pass for historical, you don't name eyewitnesses that people could check with. As one blogger wrote, Christianity is the world's most falsifiable religion, yet it survived. Because all other major religions in the world are based on people's private experiences, little personal, private, singular experiences or philosophies. Christianity is based on historical public events that could have been 
falsified and nobody could. Christianity is the world's most falsifiable religion and yet survived. Here's the list of names of people you could check with. This is what really happened. They had followed Jesus, these women. They were present at his crucifixion. They had seen him die. They had seen him buried. They were preparing the usual anointing for the dead because they knew he was that. He was dead. And now they were witnesses to his resurrection, at least to the empty tomb at this point. And even more strangely encouraging is the fact that these were women. Women were generally not regarded as equal to men in that culture. It was a common Jewish prayer, thank you that I am not a woman, a man would pray. Uh, In fact, their testimony was not regarded as credible legal witness. The, The testimony of women was not regarded as credible. So if you're making up a story and trying to make it credible and trying to convince other people that it's true when it's not really, you don't say that it was women who first heard the gospel from angels. That uh, cultural prejudice is actually demonstrated in this very passage where the women run to tell the men, but the men disregard their words as an idle tale. And uh, Luke Luke Johnson, a commentator on this, this could scarcely be more condescending. It forms the basis, this word, idle tale, forms the basis for the English word delirious. These women were delirious. There is a definite air of male superiority in this response. Right? These women are delirious. And, and actually, pagan opponents to Christianity sought to capitalize on this point and and to dismiss the truth claims of Christianity by saying, look, it's all based on the crazy rantings of delirious women. We have historical records of people saying that about Christianity. You can't buy into that. It's crazy women who are telling that story. People making up a new religion out of the air don't base it on public historical events borne witness to by people like this, testified to by witnesses like this. And the The disciples always refused to believe the gospel. They didn't believe it because they didn't want to believe it for a lot of reasons. Even the disciples themselves, the truth about Jesus, what Jesus taught himself, they didn't believe it. They refused to believe it. And here they are again, slow to believe, as usual, portrayed as being just as sexist, just as culturally shaped in their thoughts, just as dubious as anyone around them would have been, as anyone in the world ever would be, that this could be true just as dubious, they're not portrayed as heroes of the story, the great leaders of this new movement. You would portray yourselves as better than this if you were writing this story and it were not true. You're trying to make something up to get people to follow you. There's a real gritty honesty in this record that seriously bolsters the claim that these things really did happen. You don't just write stuff like this unless it were true. N.T. Wright says, nobody inventing stories after decades would have done it like that. These stories have the puzzled air of someone saying, I didn't understand it at the time, and I'm not sure I do now, but this is more or less how it happened. I'm not sure I understood it at the time. I'm not sure I understand it now, but this is what happened. It didn't make complete sense to them. It wasn't something they had anticipated, even though it had been told them several times by Jesus. They weren't culturally or religiously predisposed to believe in it. 
up against common sense and the universal experience of death being the final word in everybody's life. But this was how it was. And their slow, weak faith was starting to catch up with the reality of the gospel. Peter rose, ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, the the cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in. They were empty. And he went home marveling at what had happened. So this passage, this event, this record of this event, doesn't... um, have the sense of finality that we might wish from a resurrection passage? It doesn't have that sense of finality. It doesn't have the risen Lord Jesus making an appearance yet. That happens, again, we'll look at it next week. Um, Walking with his disciples, teaching them, eating with them, letting them touch him so they could tell that he was real and not just a ghost. Um, This passage doesn't have that. This event doesn't have that. Those things happened. They were recorded. But we're left here with words like perplexed. And they didn't believe and marveled, right? The slow, weak faith of the disciples was starting to catch up to reality. And that can be tremendously encouraging to us because that's exactly how we're all like. Slow and weak of faith. Every single person. Slow and weak of faith. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ still surprises you. And the fact that it still surprises you makes you doubt whether you have faith at all. Do I even believe this stuff? This is a shock. Every Sunday, every Easter Sunday. I've believed it for years, but it still comes as a surprise to me. Is that, am I even a Christian? Do I even have faith? Yes. You have a slow and weak faith, just like every other person, right? N.T. Wright says that the opening mood of Easter morning was one of surprise, astonishment, fear, and confusion. Easter is always a surprise. No doubt our own resurrection will be as much of a surprise. The gospel is good news, not least because it dares to tell us things we didn't expect, weren't inclined to believe, And couldn't understand. Did we expect the gospel would be something obvious? Something we could have dreamed up for ourselves? The gospel is always a surprise to us. Especially the resurrection. Maybe you're becoming a Christian. And it seems really hard to believe this business about the resurrection. Yes, it is hard for us all to believe. You're not alone in that. That's just what humans are like for so many reasons. We're afraid of the implications of the gospel. If this is true, it means a lot for me, for my relationships, for my whole life, for this whole world. We're afraid of those implications. We think our friends will think that we're gullible and stupid and will be cast out of our circles of friendship. We're just overwhelmed with the apparent meaninglessness of the world. It makes it hard to believe good news like this. There's a lot of reasons why it is hard to believe that one day 2,000 years ago death was really conquered by this man but that's the truth of the matter and the truth of it should be that your your weak faith latches onto Jesus and when it does you'll be encouraged Tim Keller says 
I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Even if you can't believe in it, you should want it to be true. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, that means there's infinite hope. Infinite hope. It really is good news for everyone. Even his own disciples who had seen him raise the dead more than once. I mean, he raised the dead himself more than once just by speaking, just by touching. Even his own disciples who saw that had a very difficult time believing what they heard that day. And if it was hard for them to believe, it is not at all surprising that it is hard for us all to believe it. And that's exactly the point of this passage. That's the point. This is hard to believe, but it's true. The Bible is very honest about that. This is hard to believe, but it's true. In fact, there's a sense in which that's the whole point of the whole scriptures, the whole word of God, the whole Bible. It is hard to believe that God loves you, but it is true. It is hard to believe that God has worked out your salvation for eternal life, but it is true. It's hard to believe that death does not win in the end, but it's true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. Believe it or not, it's real, and it declares in spite of your weak faith, because what other kind of person is there but a person with weak faith, the resurrection declares the power of the love of God to make all things right. It is going to be all right. It's hard to believe it, but it's true. We live in a world where the resurrection of Jesus Christ has happened. God has already begun a new creation in him, in the God-man. However bad your story is, and it can be bad in a lot of ways, however bad your story is, it will have a happy ending. Your sufferings, even your death, will be made glorious by the resurrection. By your resurrection, by your eternal life, by your living in glory, glorified with Jesus' own glory in heaven forever, in the new heavens and the new earth with God forever. Even your death will be made glorious by this, just as Jesus' own cross, just as his own death was made glorious by his resurrection. His death on the cross was not love's failure. It was not the failure of the God who is love that Jesus died on the cross. It was love's triumph. He succeeded in removing the barrier between you and God. He, re- he succeeded in removing the obstacle of your sin and guilt. And we know that he succeeded because God raised him from the dead. That really happened. God really does love us. And that love goes to the utter end of death itself and beyond. So put your slow, weak faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and take heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess, uh, every single one of us, that even though you are who you are, and even though you have said what you have said, and it's written in your word, clear as day, and even though Jesus came into the world and lived and died and was raised from the dead publicly and historically, borne witness to by many eyewitnesses, even though these things are true, we confess our faith is slow and weak. There are many ways in which we are unwilling to believe, unwilling to let ourselves believe in your love, the power of your love to raise 
people from the dead. We pray that as we consider the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the good news of your powerful love will put a fire in our hearts that will never die, but that will only increase and grow and spread. We pray that you would give us a, a joy and a thanksgiving in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is contagious, that um, actually spreads throughout every part of our lives and in, into all of our relationships. We pray that this good news, the best news that the world has ever heard, would be uh, truly our greatest joy to um, not only dwell upon and meditate on and be encouraged by ourselves, but it would be our greatest joy to encourage others with this good news as well, because we are a people of life. We're a people of the God of life. And death has no hold on us because of your love for us in Christ. And so we pray for the advance of the kingdom, the advance of your gospel in our lives, through our church, in this community, as you fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, who is risen indeed. We pray in his name. Amen.